Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and on today's show we have Dan Sterling. Dan, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's good talking with you. Dan, so will you introduce yourself to everybody? I'm Dan Sterling. I'm 44 years old. I'm the father of four children, two boys and two girls. I grew up in a rural part of Alberta. Um, my parents still live on their 80-acre farm, and uh, I'm a Christian. I have a Bachelor of Science in Biology. I worked in the military before becoming a police officer 14 years ago. And uh, I guess that's a good intro as any right now. What, uh, what can I tell you there more, Drew? That's great. I'm, I'm grateful for the time here. You know, it's not often that I get to interview somebody who was my student. And two, three years ago, you took the process. And I, and I just have to share, because you and I talked about this before, but when you walked in that room at almost six to 300 pounds with that scowl on your face, you know, I, I don't get scared much, but uh, I, I took a breath because I thought, uh-oh, wow, this, this is going to be an interesting time. What was it like for you when you stepped into the Hoffman process? Well, if you can forgive me for going back into character, I thought it was retarded. I thought this is really not what I wanted to do. Actually, when I looked around the room, I was very judgmental over the people that were there. And when I looked at, uh, at the instructors, I thought I was actually angry at my, my boss at the time who had really recommended and set up for me to come to the process. I still remember that beaming, shit-eating grin that he had on his face when he said, Dan, I'd love it for you to go on this process. You, you would really benefit from this. And he went through the process with my wife. Like he's a personal friend of ours. And I, I really, at that point realized, holy, this guy sent me here. And my wife really didn't tell me anything about it. He didn't tell me anything about it. And I thought this was some kind of joke at first that I was going to be here. So I don't know what else to tell you about it, but I, I, at first I was not impressed. In my fact, my sister lives down the road about a half hour away from where it was. And I really was thinking of, of uh, I kept my, my duty phone, by the way. I was going to call her to have her come pick me up because I, I just didn't even like what I saw at first. I was mad, actually, when you saw me. I was mad. You looked mad. And, and, but why, why did your boss as a police officer, what does the Hoffman process have to do with being a, an effective police officer? Why would he recommend this? Policing has a habit of changing someone. And my boss, being who he was, he was a very compassionate, very thoughtful man. He knew a lot about me. 
uh, him and I had known each other for a while and he could see this sort of darkness that comes over people. Let, let me put it this way. When someone has a firefighter show up, they're really happy that they're there to save their house. When paramedics show up, everyone's happy, but cops are never there for a good reason. They get to have everyone at their worst. They start becoming very disengaged and jaded over time. And he could see that happening. He talked to me about it. Him and I were, we'd go for coffee together and he talked to me about about things and he could he could see that I was having trouble in my personal life in my marriage and it was just like this when I saw him come back from the process himself he was just beaming he was just so happy it was like shit just rolled off his shoulders he didn't care he was just in it for the right reasons in life and I wondered what had actually happened to him because he went through it a month before I did and then he called me in his office and we were just going to sit down and talk. And of course it closed the door and then he's talking to me about it. And he looked way too happy for this to be okay. Like I should have known that something was up. And I, and I think this process would be very valuable for a lot of police officers to be involved in because we, we somehow compartmentalize the things that would make us very vulnerable where it would be inappropriate, but then we keep those things compartmentalized for people that are important, like our wives, our, our children, and we get shut off. And uh, that's, that's just, I guess, in a nutshell, what I was going through at that moment. I was actually almost scared because I realized I couldn't hide. There was nobody else there like me. There was hippie-type people there. There was people who had all kinds of stuff going on. Like, I didn't want to hang out with people who did yoga. That, that was just bizarre. And yet, I actually ended up liking them towards the end of the process. It's like, these are really awesome people. And so, just to give us a sense of what life was like for you, what was hard on your heart? Absolutely. Uh, I was a lead investigator for some very difficult in- investigations and Less than two months before I came on the process, I was at the lowest I've ever been in my life. And I had to investigate uh, the death of a child. And it was when I realized I had a big problem. I actually knew I had a big problem then. I remember sitting in my police truck and I was having a breakdown, but it was silent. It was stoic. I drove to the, to the police detachment and I told my boss, I just need a couple, couple hours. And I went and sat in the gym room. I lifted some weights and I sat in the dark and I locked the door, the gym door lock where I worked at that time. And I realized I couldn't cry. Throughout my childhood, I'd kind of learned that the only emotion a man feels or can express is anger. And so I really hadn't allowed myself to be emotional in any other capacity. It was either very being very stoic or angry, or when I was being funny, I was insulting somebody. And I just was having a meltdown, but I couldn't really formulate that that was what was happening. I think that my boss saw that. So Dan, what about the process and other police officers? What's your take on how it might help them? I think that every police officer, after about five years of service, needs to go through this process. 
absolutely they need to. It's not uncommon for police officers to have a background that this would be beneficial for, but I think that every police officer should go through this process. I think it would be better for everyone, especially with the issues we have going on right now in our both of our countries. I think it'd be a great thing. We need to do it. What would be the benefit to police in particular? I think that the same things that were happening to me with getting cold, getting detached, I think they would be able to come to grips with what that is and give them the tools to not do that, to get engaged. It's okay to be engaged emotionally with your work. It's a good thing. It would help them override that survival mechanism they need to always be in survival mode. Maybe it's okay to smile. Do you know how much a smile actually affects the public? Hey, it can be the one thing that prevents an officer from getting into a fight sometimes if they're approachable, professional, a little bit friendly, until they're given a reason not to be. But I can guarantee if most people are feel like they're being treated with respect, I, I think that it would diffuse a lot of the situations. I think it's so, it's so salient to everything that we have going on right now. We, we need more police officers to have this process. So there you are in the process. You don't call your sister. You hang in there. And what happens? Like, honestly, Dan, what happened? Well, you did something really amazing. At one point, you came up to me right out of the blue. And you asked me, Dan, can I give you a hug? And I didn't realize until you did that, that I needed a hug. I've almost felt like a, like a pit bull rescue. You know, those videos you see on YouTube with these pit bulls getting rescued and, you know, everyone thought they were a big mean thing and they're not. And you could see that. I mean, I even said you at one point when you said all Canadians are, are really friendly. And I, I, I don't know if I said it under my breath, but my, my people that were in the group heard me and you didn't react. Like you, you were kind to me when I was actually kind of standoffish and mean. That's what changed me on that. If, if you had reacted to me or anything, I would probably, I was giving myself a reason to walk out and I'm glad you didn't give me that reason. Well, I'm glad you didn't walk out either. <laughs> <laughs> and as you, as you dug into the work of your childhood, what did you discover? What were those first few days like as you began to uncover some of your earlier experiences in your life? I guess as a backstory, I came from fairly humble beginnings. My dad had a service station, and at the time, the National Energy Program in the 80s actually did tank Alberta's economy. And I was raised to believe that liberals did this to us. So I, I developed this nebulous sort of uh, abstract concept that there was these liberals out there that were just going to fuck with your life and make everything miserable and that it was only cool people like myself and anyone I hung out with that were were above that and so it was very blue collar in what I perceived to be right and wrong and, and uh, I, I really had a chip on my shoulder I'd get into a lot of fights at school I got pulled out of two schools because of fighting so Dan, let's just let me just get that clear. So your dad has a, a gas station, a service station for cars, although it doesn't yield a lot of money. It does provide a living wage, and then 
the government creates what that makes the service station go out of business? Well, I guess, I guess to be specific about it, at the time, Prime Minister Trudeau, who was the Liberal leader at the time, put in the National Energy Program. And in Alberta, people actually stopped going to any Petro-Canada station because they wouldn't support something that had ostensibly destroyed the Alberta economy. It wasn't the sole reason, but that's how people perceived it. And there was a lot of Petro-Canada stations that went under. And my dad had a full-service three-bay three garage with full repair and everything. He had mechanics working for him. And at the end of every month, he still had enough to provide us a, a, an okay living. And as a kind of statement, you were boycotted along with other Petro-Canada stations. Absolutely. And the thing is, is people who lost their stations were somehow sympathetic to that because they felt that in a, in a big hand, small map analogy, they thought this was just a natural result of of the National Energy Program. And so what I pulled from that is that liberals did something to me. Well, your dad helped with that, right? Uh, yeah, but I believe in it, a lot of it was my mom. I'd watch something on the news and say, well, what about this? And I'd always ask. And in my mind, there was these liberals in Ottawa that wrecked my life. And that's how I started to see every th everyone. So if I would see teachers' kids who I knew were reasonably well off, I automatically wouldn't like them. Then I would start hanging out with rough kids that maybe weren't the best because, well, I didn't feel bad about being around them. I got to the point where I wouldn't keep a friend, and as long as they had, were good, they had to have some kind of damage about them. Reaching into my adulthood, that really became a common theme. I would, want, I would seek out people who were damaged or had something off because that was my crew. That was always the way I'd kind of rolled. It, it's, it's kind of messed up if you think about it, but I still remember getting towards the end of a month. I was, we didn't have a lot of food in the house. And I remember my mother was frustrated too. And she goes, if you ever feel bad about it, just know this, this is what a liberal did to you. I'm like, holy, there's these liberals out there. And as, as a, as a nine, 10 year old kid, you don't know what a liberal is or political leanings or anything. You just know that there's these bad people out there that wrecked your life. And I, by extension, started including this really wide list of people that wouldn't even fall in that category by any rational definition, but it, it became very isolating. There was a lot of friendships I could have had. There was girls I could have gone out with when I was in, in college, and I just refused a lot, of, a lot of what could have been good in my life because I was still stuck there. So with liberals as the perpetrators for much of your suffering, you, you end up in the workforce. And then what happens as you marry? Oh, that's, uh, that's kind of a, how did that happen? I met my wife online. When I was in the military, it was very hard to meet nice girls. And I kind of knew that she was from a, she, both of her parents were teachers then they are actual liberals. <laughs> That's how they vote. And so does my wife sometimes if she feels like it or she, she's very much an issues driven person. And she's the first person that really loved me unconditionally. She's the first person that believed in me. You know, when I told her I really didn't join the military as a long-term thing that I was eventually wanting to be a police officer, she's like, we'll do it. And 
I think that was one of the first stages where I started to see things a little bit differently, but I still held this horrible grudge and she saw that. It actually affected our marriage because if I ever needed to press a button, one thing I know about many liberals is that they feel very passionately about social justice issues or fill in the blank. But I would deliberately press her button sometimes if I was ever feeling frustrated with something completely unrelated. Because it, it felt like I got to take out my frustrations on the thing that I was still holding a grudge against. And so here you are, raised to hate liberals, and yet you married one. And pre-process, what was the state of your marriage? Oh, it was in tatters. Yeah, I was, uh, I was very close to, I think I was going to get it. I was almost on the tr fast track to a divorce. And in all fairness, I, I think that I couldn't really have blamed my wife. There was a lot of times I was very emotionally unavailable because over time, the job had gotten to me. I had developed some very rigid thinking about black and white, right and wrong. Issues were always black and white. There was never a gray area for me. It was actually hard to talk to me. I think I was a hard person to get along with. I really was. It was awful. And so you, you're back in the process to which your boss had sent you to. What happened? Like, take us back there again. The days moved now, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. What's beginning? If, if we were to have a window into your Hoffman process, what would we see for you, Dan? I was feeling a horrible sense of loss for the time I missed out with my wife. I missed her being that really bubbly, happy person when she was younger. And I was realizing that I'd never allowed myself to fully be in the moment with her and enjoy that relationship. I was also feeling very badly because some of the people that I was there with, such beautiful people, were very similar to her in personality. And I, uh, I think some of the things that attracted me to my wife were also the things that I was most critical of. The kindness and the compassion that she had for other people. Um, she vicariously just sort of understands what some people are going through. And, and I realized how jealous I was of her. And sometimes we're most critical of the things that we that we admire, but feel like we can't emulate. And that's how I was with her. So what was it like to work with that? You know, in the process, we don't ignore the hard stuff. We go right towards it. So now you're working with jealousy and a bit of anger and rage, and you're not comfortable with vulnerability. It's not what you do. You've been taught that that's not who you are. That's not cool to show. So what happens for you as you begin to work with those things? I had uh, always been taught before that, and I hadn't, it was not a, f a formal thing. It was not part of a program, but, you know, it, it, to, to express a feminine side during the 90s, you might probably remember that it seems society thought that having emotions like expressing grief, loss, crying, sadness, those are, those are getting in touch with your feminine side. And I think that was harmful in that I realized that those are just human emotions. That's what my wife had been trying to talk to me about for 
at the time we'd been married uh, 16 years. I hadn't really opened up to her the f fully. That, that was a really hard thing to come to that I've been like that with her. Sounds humbling. Well, it was. It was. I'd set myself aside from mainstream society for so long. And I kept very few friends outside of work that I was now being forced to be alongside people that I would have completely passed by like ships in the night. And now I have to kind of get along with them and be alongside them. And the, the part that bothered me the most is the way I, I judged them in my mind when I first met them. And then here I find that they, they gave me these, well, there was at one point you remember where there was this powerful affirmation that I'm not a big mean son of a bitch. Because that's how I'd seen myself. How did that go down? Take us there. Without getting into too many specifics, because it's so long ago, we were in a circle and there was some part of us that we had to share. And I just remember shaking almost and, and started to cry. And I said, well, I'm not a big mean son of a bitch. And there, I think there was had to been at least five or six hands on my shoulder. And to have that kind of support. Wow. Wow. That, and some of them were people that I had, with a perceptual shorthand, just written off when I first met them. And they were showing me kindness. I love that. A perceptual shorthand, you wrote them off, and yet here they're the ones showing you kindness. And you, you know, Dan, you let it in. So there's something, you must have been craving it on a deeper level. Is that possible? I needed to be loved. And I had gone a long time without fully accepting my wife's love. I had gone a long time without accepting my parents' apology. They had actually made strident efforts to make up for what happened as a kid, the heavy, very heavy-handed discipline, the, the things that they had taught me. They tried to recant and say, this, is, this was not right. And I had just turned into more and more of an asshole in life. That's quite quite striking. I, I don't remember that. Even in their effort to reconcile and apologize and make amends for the way in which you were raised, you it didn't it didn't infiltrate it. it. What happened? My dad and I went fishing when I was twenty four, and we were sitting on the bank of the of the river, and I still remember it was a great day. We caught. We caught quite a few fish, and he said, Dan, I wanted to talk to you about something. I'm sorry for what happened. And he didn't just say, sorry. He said, I'm sorry for, he went through specific incidents that happened, times that there had been beatings, things that he taught me that were wrong. He admitted that he taught me a lot of anger. And I took it in, and I felt better after, but I, I didn't really forgive him. Not, not truly. Dan, how did he come to that act? How could, what happened that he was able to do that with you? I think he could see what I'd become. He totally could see it. He'd, he'd asked me to be careful. He, he'd said, please don't, please don't join the army full-time, Dan. Just do it part-time while you're in college. But please, you're a good guy. You're a nice guy. I don't want you to. He begged me not to. Because I was doing it, he could see what I was using it for. I was using it to become something that I maybe wasn't emotionally equipped for. 
and he had a lot of wisdom through his years. He'd made his mistakes. I feel very badly now that there, there, that was more than an olive branch. That was an olive branch with dollars on it. Like who gets that? And I, I felt so guilty when I was going through the process that I felt like I threw that away. And so what, what happened post-process with them? Did you get a chance to connect with them after? Yeah, I did. Uh, it was three weeks after the process, three or four weeks after the process, I drove out. I brought all my kids with me. My wife had a business trip. She had to clean up a few things because we were getting ready to move. And man, I, I just wanted to go there and love them. And I had some really close heart to hearts with them. I apologized to them for how I treated them in my adulthood. I apologized to them for uh, talking down to them. The weird thing is I stayed in regular touch with them, so no one could ever take that away from me, but it was not always the kind of contact that you would want to have. It, some of it was pretty negative I'd done over the years, so I had, I had some work I had to do with them. And seeing my mother asleep on the couch and my dad had her feet up on his lap and his head was leaned back and I could see the TV glaring off of his glasses and there was just this vulnerability there that I it's almost think it's an overused word, but it was, they were vulnerable. They were, they're old now. And I was so blessed at that moment. I still have them. I, they're still here. I can still try to make up for it, especially as they've gotten older, have made a lot of effort with me. And it was the first time that I ever felt I could truly in my heart reciprocate that because the pain didn't end once I grew up. I started inflicting upon them through their efforts to try to say, you know what, this wasn't right and we're sorry we did that. So it, uh, the, that fall of 2019 after Hoffman meant a lot to me with what I was able to achieve with them on that trip. And it was only a four-day trip. It was all we had. And describe that 80-acre farm where you grew up, where they still were. What would we see if we were on that land with you? You would see a little three-bedroom house, very, very clean, but old. You would see a large garage beside it, and there's this feeling of age with it. It would just, it's, it's getting old now. The trees are getting big. There's a big row of lodgepole pines out in front of it. And it leads into an old stable area where sometimes the hired hand will park his trailer and he just helps them with odd jobs. My dad is kind of a fix-it guy, so he's got a lot of projects on the go. There's some broken vehicles. There's a huge fire pit out front, and there's about 38 or 40 acres of uh, hayfield. And then there's a spruce bog in the north end of the property. Whenever I pull up, uh, my, my big mama is just out there on the front porch. Even when I was angry or coming home without a good attitude, she'd still come on out, open the door, that, that creaky old screen door, and... Uh, she was always happy to see me with a great big hug. I still have that when I come home. That's, that's what I have in that place. That's what that place means to me. So after the process, you take your four kids up for that 
um, limited time you have with them. You see them with the TV glaring in their glasses as they're asleep, and you have this moment of vulnerability as you see them older. What a beautiful scene. And then you sit down with them and, and share, and how do they receive this Dan post-process? What happens? They loved it. I could never tell them I went through the process because they have still certain very traditional beliefs. But I think that if I told them now what it was, they would be very grateful and happy. But man, it was well-received. We had some times where we talked, we laughed, we cried together about some things that had happened. And we'd never been able to quite do it like that. We'd be waited for the kids to go to bed. I remember I asked my older daughter to babysit and we went to our old place that we used to go for lunch. It was kind of cute because my dad's a bit hearing impaired now. He misses some of the conversation and uh, my mom will kind of almost translate for him a little bit and yell a bit louder. And then he'll say, don't yell at me. And so it was, but we still got the messages all across and we were in the car together, just really enjoying each other's company. And there's this, there was just this massive level of forgiveness that we could have with each other. What's it like to remember that moment? I live there. I live there. By living there, part of my heart stays there because it's what me, I'm on the phone with them now four times a week. I call them, they call me. My dad texts me some silly meme that he finds. My mom has learned to text a little bit better. <laughs> and she does the email now. So that's good, right? <laughs> and I, I, I cherish them because there, there's this finality that I realize I don't get to have them forever. Yeah, I get to have them for now. That's it. I don't know how long that'll be. And so post-process, now you're back in your life. What is happening with your life as a husband, as a father, and as an employee in the police force? How, how do you know things are different for you? How do you know you've taken the process? The reactions of other people. I can tell that they, that they react differently to me than how people used to react. And it's, I think I was very blessed in having a completely new work situation. I went to a plainclothes investigative section, a completely new town. People at work would more describe me as being a gentle giant, a nice guy. I can tell by the way they smile at me and I, They'll just do me favors, like bring me a tea, or they know I like the same Tim Hortons, extra large, five sweetener. Nobody doubts that in my workplace. They just bring me one. People weren't like that before. I'm a nicer person to be around. And that's, it's those little, little acts of service now that seem to be more spontaneous. And I'm quiet. I don't say anything. I wait and I, I let people have their little reaction that they're going to have, even if they're angry. And very often I'm finding that gives me the time to sort out what I have instead of an immediate anger response. Now it's how do I feel? And usually it's that I want to react with some type of empathy or compassion. And the only way I can do that is the classical count to 10 and see how we feel at the end of that. My kids asked mom, What's wrong with dad? Why is he being so nice? Because for a couple months there, the kids got spoiled really badly. 
I don't know if that was the right thing, but I mean, I had some real guilt to work through. I used to talk down to my kids a lot. I used to talk to the, down to them pretty badly. The 90% things I was doing right don't really count, I think, when they remember the 10% that is wrong. And I needed to try to fix some of those things. And I, I left it open. The door was open to them. You know, I did a few things wrong, kids. I used to talk pretty pretty rough with you. If you ever feel like you need to talk about it, you do. And actually, they did. They started bringing up their grievances. They took you up on it? Absolutely, they did. And I was glad they did. Do you remember a moment when one of them spoke up? Was it your oldest? Yeah. Old habits die hard. And that same old crass Dan came back at one point, and I was talking to my oldest son. He hadn't cleaned up the front room, and uh, you know I dropped a couple of F-bombs and told him not to be such a slob, and it was pretty rough. Like, you don't talk to your kids that way. You sh no one should do that. And uh, my daughter actually said right out, Dad, I'm calling you on your shit today. You can't talk to us that way. I looked at her and I couldn't argue. It's like, I just promised them I'd be different a year earlier. Why would I stop now? And I wasn't going to argue with her. I said, you know what? You're right. I went and gave my son a hug, admitted that I wasn't right. But I said, you still have to clean it up. But I won't talk to you like that again. I'm sorry. You know, Dan, one of the things I remember vividly on that first day was your eyes and how big they were and how it just felt like they were glaring out at the world and i saw a photo recently of you with your kids and you just looked so soft and gentle compared to that kind of armored up exterior with those eyes what's it like to be uh, more gentle with yourself and those around you it doesn't feel different to do it it feels different to how the world reacts to that behavior it doesn't feel different to be different. It feels different in how the world reacts to being different. So maybe this is more of, of who you really are. And so that's why it feels so authentic. And what feels different is that the world is seeing it, responding more positively, appreciating it, and letting you know that through their words and behavior. Yes, it is. But if you follow the timelines, it actually makes sense because everything that I seem to have been doing in my young adulthood was to be a lot tougher and thinking that's the way the world is. So, you know, we're going to give the world back what it's been giving me. And I really missed a lot of blessings that way. I've missed a lot of friendships. I missed a lot of opportunities to have closeness in my life that I needed. I really did. And that pit bull image why does that resonate with you of who you used to be as you know they're a misunderstood breed people are judged by the look i think the i think it is a very accurate analogy they're usually very nice dogs they're very protective most of them are and i feel i feel in some ways sort of kindred spirit with them i'll never have that kind of dog but it's in terms of personality wise it seems that's that would be the if I was a dog person, I would, I'd probably have that as a dog. If you overlay your process and some of the tools and practices or concepts, what sticks with you as you work to 
uh, be that authentic person that is more gentle rather than the armored up pit bull that maybe you were raised into being? What do you remember? I think I'm taking it all in. I'm not going to regret anymore. Because in, in, in being the way I was, I did gain a very valuable tool. Sometimes I think in our modern world, we're taught to be nice all the time as a mandatory default. You're always going to be nice to everyone. Well, I don't have to be. I can turn it off really quick. If, if somebody wants, that's a tool. That's a valuable tool, but it's a tool that makes my kindness very authentic. I actually want to be that way. I strive to be that way. I need to be that way, but I don't have to. And I think that's the where the uh, the genuine power is, is that I'm going to be kind to people because I want to. I don't feel like I have to. It's not coming from a disingenuous place. And you have choice around it so that if necessary, you can set boundaries and show up differently depending on the situation. The important piece is that you're not subjected to a certain way of behaving. You do have choice. Absolutely. I think I used an analogy before. I'm a navigator. You're a grappler. I, I, I'm a navigator. I used to be very rigid. I used to go by true north all the time. But as we all know with navigation, you set the declination of your compass to the map you're using for the year that it is in order to navigate properly. Because that magnetic north is just like life. It, it's dynamic. It moves every year. Things change. So my, my moral compass is still there. It's still the same compass I'm using. I think what the Hoffman process allowed me to do is calibrate that declination properly so that it works properly, so I can get from point A to point B. Navigating around a conflict is actually some of the best one of the best things you can do. You can still get to your destination without taking on somebody who's stuck in a, in a bad pattern. That's, that's how I've learned that the best way to win a fight is to not be there sometimes. And as you're heading back from work to your family and you turn on your favorite tune, what, what are you playing? Usually something country, but I, I really like Tim McGraw. Humble and Kind is my one of his new songs. I think it came out about a year ago, but I love it. I think I actually sent you a YouTube video on that a while back. You did. I love how the song, in the, in the, in the first verse, he said, you know there's a light that glows by the front door. Don't forget the keys under the doormat. And I think about my mom and dad. My mom had a saying. She said, I don't mean to love you with my regret, but it's a true love. Like she felt bad when she was apologizing to me. And my mom leaves the back door light on. And in her mind, I ne she, she needs to do that because somebody might come home at night. And they do leave the keys. I won't tell you where they do it. It's not under the mat, but they do leave keys for any, for any of us kids who, if we decide to come home and we don't have our keys handy. I just think of my mom and dad with that song. I, it's such a powerful song for me. And I love that the simple lessons in life that we need, hold the door open, say please, say thank you, don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. And every verse of the song ends with, you know, always stay humble and kind. What a beautiful song. And her wisdom of, I don't mean to love you with my regrets. When people love each other with their regret a little bit, it's such a powerful love. It's actually, people would think that was morbid, but it's not. It actually has to do with 
that they don't forget what happened that you that that part of the person still means something so much to them and I'll, I'll never forget that because in some ways that's how I've loved my own children. I don't mean to be the way I am. So in some ways I love with my, love them with my regret and it's not a bad thing. It's just a reminder that I have to do better. It's not a bad thing to be reminded of that. Dan, you have taken us to your process and then all the things that happened pre-process all the way back to your childhood and being raised in Alberta, and then all the way up to now, what's it been like to take a survey of your life and interlace the Hoffman process throughout that? What do you notice? I know that I've done many things good, and I know I've done them right, but I've also done things that I regret. I took on certain attitudes because of what life was presenting, especially with my work. I let things get to me. For my first about three and a half to four years as a police officer, I, I was very invested in it emotionally. And there were some things that happened that shook my foundations that the vestigial remnants of this really nice Dan were getting put in compartments and locked. I had a friend that committed suicide, a very, a really good friend. I used to work out with him. You know, he was going to come fishing with me and some guys at work. And, uh, I really think I failed him. I failed him because I was too involved with my life that I didn't pick up on things he was saying. You know, he tried to give me all of his, uh, Popeye's, uh, supplements. He gave me all his workout uh, books and I wonder why he's giving me these things. And he was supposed to come hunting with me that fall of that year. And I had offered to give him one of my good hunting rifles for a, in trade for a pistol that he owned. Well, I got a call from work to come in. And he said, your friend just shot himself. And he left you his pistol in his uh, suicide note. And I ended up becoming the exhibit custodian on that file. And there, there was this big part of me that, just ground to a halt at that time. I don't, I don't know what to tell you about it other than it was incremental. The pistol that you gave him was the one he used to kill himself? No, the pistol that I had offered to buy off of him or give him a hunting rifle, that's why he left it for me in his suicide note. He was well-liked. Like We all knew him in the community. He was a super nice guy. You know, he worked as a security guard, and uh, he helped run the, the gym in town with his mom. So how does one navigate forgiveness and self-compassion for those regrets? You've talked about regret a lot during this uh, conversation. So what do you do with your regrets and how long is the statute of limitations around holding ourselves accountable for something? What, what do you notice that forgiveness steps in and has to say about this regret. I think that regret is is not always a bad thing. There's no such thing as a positive regret, but if if regret is an evolving emotion that I have towards these incidents, it, it's a form of suffering. How how do I engage that suffering? If I can engage my suffering, and this is what I've learned since the Hoffman process, when I engage my suffering in a way that allows me to enjoy the good things in life, then 
I get to grow with it. Jesus is a central figure in my life, and one of the things he spoke about about people is that some of people's consciences are seared with a hot iron. And having regret means I have a conscience. And as long as I don't stay stuck there, I can still always work with it. I like the fact that I regret some of the things that I've done. It stands as a mile, milestone that, okay, this, we don't go back here now. So it's almost like it's an active, alive uh, regret that dialogues with your present self moment to moment to inform you about how to be in the present. You nailed it right on the head. Absolutely. Wow. I'm, I'm inspired by your use of regret for your own deeper presence in your life. For me, it's a, uh, it's a verb. It grows. It, it actually eventually changes. Re regret and reconciliation are two sides of the same coin. Eventually, if I work through my regret, I can reconcile. And that's, that's not, I haven't read that anywhere, but that's how I feel about, about that. When I remember my friend, there was another incident that happened that, uh, you know, I, I ended up preventing a suicide. I saw the signs. I didn't ignore them. And I got, I took a call from somebody that I really had a lot of time for at, at, at wee hours of the morning. And I, I made some suggestions about someone he could go and talk with and he didn't do it. And I, I still, I still stay in touch with him. So how, what I do with my regret is, is if I can grow from it, eventually it becomes reconciliation. So you, you, in that moment, you took the regret of your friend's suicide and applied the learnings, the lessons, and showed up differently in this next situation and averted it. I've talked to suicide survivors before, and while we're on that topic of regret, do you, most of them are absolutely grateful that they are alive, even if they have life-changing injuries? Most of them are. I remember there was one guy who had shot himself in the head, um, and he was a nice guy. He was a regular client of ours. He was in and out of jail, and uh, you know, I, I I talked with him how he was doing, and he I could tell he was having some issues speaking to me, but he was still making it by. And, and I had to drive him to the correctional center after court. Uh, there was no one to do be available to do it, and we had an awesome talk. We actually stopped for Slurpees. Uh, or I don't know what you call them in the States, slushies. Uh, I don't, but we stopped and we had that and a hot dog on the way to take him to jail after being sentenced. I asked him, we're like, how are you doing health-wise? And and he, he said, I'm doing good. Like, he asked, are you asking about my shooting myself? And I'm like, to be honest, yeah, man, I am. And uh, he said, I'm doing good. I'm glad I, I'm glad I tried and I'm glad I survived. He actually said that. I'm glad I tried and I'm glad I survived. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm so happy I lived. Yeah, he was going to jail for a few months, but it, it was like he, he looked at the world so differently after. And I kind of had to respect him for that. Like he just, he gave me a new perspective on what it is to value your own life. That was, that was very powerful for me to, to hear that from somebody who had, who had tried and who I felt pretty bad for. And then it changed my perspective completely. Dan, how's your health doing? I know you've had some health challenges lately. What's happening with that? 
Well, I have a condition called hemochromatosis. I absorb far too much iron into my blood, and that has actually damaged my liver. And that's what I'm going in weekly now, uh, a couple times a week for treatment for. I am uh, currently just went off of work. I'll be off of work for a while while I get uh, treatment for my liver. I actually, you know, don't even know what to think about it other than we had a Tim McGraw song for that. It seems he's got a song for everything, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> I don't mean, uh, Live Like You Were Dying was a song. I'm not dying. Uh, I'm going to get better, but eventually what I have is going to kill me. And it is known to shorten life expectancy. The one part of the song that actually ties in with this process that I went through, and he, I love the lyrics. He said, and I loved deeper and I spoke sweeter. I gave the forgiveness I had been denying. I loved deeper. I spoke sweeter and I gave the forgiveness I had been denying. And later on in the song, he said, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. And I became the friend a friend would like to have. Wow. So I had my license pulled as well because as a result of my medical condition, because sometimes it affects my ability to even stay awake. I thought, you know, that song, I heard that a long time ago when it came out, but man, is it ever applicable now? And when I get better, I'm going to be eventually back at work. I'll be getting my license back. And I just, I just know that I'm here on borrowed time. So you know what? I'm going to act like it. Or I'm going to live like I'm dying. Wow, beautiful. Dan, I'm so grateful for this conversation. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time and uh, for your heart throughout this dialogue. Well, thank you for talking to me. It's, uh, it's almost like we're just talking on the phone right now. I've been very comfortable talking to you. for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.